time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It's Friday. Woo-hoo! <laughs> time to kick up your heels. Call it a week. Oh boy, we've got a show lined up for you today. You ever heard of the Klingon Bible? Now this is one practical Bible, in case you have a close encounter with a Klingon. You can share the gospel of Jesus Christ with him in his own language. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) We'll get to that in a few minutes. This is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ. My job is to serve up a daily dose of biblical discernment. And uh, take wild thoughts that are out there running around and make them captive to Christ. That means captive to the gospel. All right, so we got a show lined up for you today. It's Friday, and uh, we're going to be looking at the Klingon Bible. going to give you a little bit more of my thoughts and reflections on the book, The Shack. And I'm um, going to talk a little bit about uh, the law and the gospel. I always have to keep coming back to this. It's important that we do that. And uh, and after we do a little bit of work on law and gospel, we're going to uh, take a look at the opening of the second sermon on the 40 Days of Love from Pastor Rick Warren over at Saddleback Church there in Lake Forest, California. In fact, we uh, we broadcast from within the shadow of Saddleback. Saddleback is such a large church that... Uh, well, Pirate Christian Radio, you know, at particular times of the day, the shadow from Saddleback hits us and covers us in darkness. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, just, uh, just a reminder, uh, we are in the middle of a mail campaign. Would love for you to participate. Uh, Paula White is uh, doing the Day of Atonement again. We uh, earlier this week played a segment from... Uh, a television show she did on the Day of Atonement last year where uh, she basically made the claim, uh, her and uh, Larry Huckster, uh, they uh, were basically claiming that if you send in money to them, God, and you have to send it in by the Day of Atonement, by the way. Day of Atonement this year is on October 9th. So if you send in money to them, large sums, they recommended, you know, anywhere from $10,000 to $5,000 or $207, whatever is truly a sacrificial offering. You send them their money, and if you do it because and by the Day of Atonement, then guess what? God will write your name in the fictitious, mysteriously mythological book of blessings. Never really mentioned in Bible, but they've invented it, pulled it out of the sky, and said that God will write your name in the book of blessings if you just send them money. And then what happens is, is if your name is written in the book of blessings, all kinds of great things would happen to you. Prosperity, joy, peace, you know. But it only, it's only good for a year. So you know, I'm sure all of the people who send in their money and had their name written in the book of blessing last year you know, the, the, you got to hit them up again because, you know, hey, the the train rides come to an end. You know, those little uh, those those little animals that you ride in front of the grocery stores, you got to put another quarter in if you want to ride again. So uh, what we're doing at FightingForTheFaith.com, there is a PDF that you can download. It's the top post at FightingForTheFaith.com. 
You can print that out, have your kids color it. It's got a ram, a couple of male goats, and a bull on there. Because if you read Leviticus 16, if you read Leviticus 16, the requirements for the Day of Atonement, that's the offerings that are supposed to be there. But of course, we Christians know that Jesus Christ is our Day of Atonement offering sacrifice for our sins once for all and that the all the blood of goats and bulls were pointing towards the one sacrifice for our sins that's jesus's death on the cross but uh, of course you know that's never going to keep a good scam artist like paula white down so she's invented her own ideas regarding the day of atonement please print out the pdf have your kids color it and then send it in to paula white's ministry we've provided the p.o box there in Tampa, Florida, that you can send it to, and uh, and you know because you're being biblical and offering you know a ram, two goats and a bull, you know maybe just maybe God will write your name in the book of blessings, if there is such a thing. Anyway, moving right along, <clears throat> from somewhere outside of our galaxy comes the Klingon Bible. Um, the, it's true there is. <laughs> There's a group of guys that, oh man, uber nerds. I, I'm a nerd, and I I hate to say this, I, I'm a Trekkie. In fact, if you were to go backwards in time and look at Chris when Chris was in high school, and the things that I would do, oh, what the nerdy things I would do. In fact, my friends and I, along with my now wife, who was uh, my girlfriend at the time in high school, we made our own Star Trek episodes, built our own sets. I mean, we had Christmas lights on the... You know, on <laughs> for the uh, for the control panels, it was elaborate. It was amazing. It was nerdy, and uh, there are some people who uh, who live in that nerdiness. Now, here's the deal: the Klingon Bible is a real Bible. It's called the Klingon language version, and uh, there's a group of people working on it. And uh, I'll put a link up to it at uh, fightingforthefaith.com if you would like to go and. Look at the Klingon Bible. In fact, they have a passage lookup uh, uh, widget or something on their website. So you, you know, if you want to know what John three sixteen says in Klingon, you can type in John three sixteen and whammo blammo, it'll come up in Klingon. And uh, this is really important because you know, should Gene Roddenberry now? Gene Roddenberry was the uh, he's the guy who yeah right that's right he's the guy who uh, wrote the originally wrote the uh, Star Trek series. He's dead now. And um, should he have actually been a prophet and actually had special information about true extraterrestrials that just happened to be Klingon and you just happened to run into one of them while, you know, jogging around the moon or something, then the good news is, is that the Klingon language version will allow you the opportunity to share the gospel in Klingon. <laughs> and they have a podcast. Um, I'm going to play for you a segment of the Klingon Language Bible podcast because it's just oh so fun. And the artwork that comes with this, <laughs> this podcast, oh my goodness, it's, <sighs> I can't, I, well, we'll just play it. Here we go. Without any further ado, here's a sample of the Klingon Bible Klingon language version podcast uh, explaining some very important things about Klingon culture and the Klingon language. A Klingon word from the word. 
the talk zip vult joka rach shai enduring rach. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Look, Josh, this isn't the first time our wanderings <laughs> through the Psalms has made us face what must be perplexing. It might be perplexing to humans, but Klingons would understand this praise of fear, for fear is not a bad thing. The Tachlip Joka Rak Shai Enduring Rech, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The word here in Hebrew is Yira, the same word we hear in Psalm 23's I will fear no evil. I've used Tachlip, afraid to go on, as fear because, well, there isn't a Klingon word. For fear, the close. <laughs> In case you didn't know, there was there is no Klingon word for fear. Glad we knew that little bit about Klingon culture, because that's a very important thing, you know, especially if you're trying to teach them about the fear of the Lord. <sighs> is ridge to scare, and you do see that word appeared in translations as fear. For example, not kok I'm so sorry. Oh my goodness. Uh, okay, Chris. Oh my. Oh man, I... Never mind. <laughs> It sounds like he's hacking up a hairball. Oh my goodness! Oh, okay. I can't play anymore. I'm. So, I just. I'll put a link to it up at fightingforthefaith.com. Again, practical, very practical Bible that you have here. The funny thing is, is I've actually been kind of perusing the Klingon language Bible, and just just a little bit of comparative work here between the Klingon language version and the Message paraphrase. Got to tell you, the Klingon Bible is definitely far more accurate than the message paraphrase. In fact, if I were recommending Bibles to somebody and I were to write out a list of Bibles that I would recommend in order from, you know, the most recommended to least recommended, the Klingon Bible actually comes in above the message paraphrase. Now, both of them are at the bottom of the list, but the Klingon Bible definitely m more accurate far more accurate than the message. In fact, I'd really like to see if uh, Rick Warren could... Uh, <laughs> wouldn't it be just a scream if Rick Warren preached a sermon and he was proof texting and found that the closest translation to the thing he was trying to proof text in his sermon was from the KLV. Also known as the Klingon language version. Oh, man. Just... <sighs> Too much time on their hands. Way too much time on... <laughs> okay, I'm going to switch gears here. We're <laughs> okay. We're going to segue into uh, a discussion if on the uh, on the shack. Now, if you remember, what, one of the things I've been doing is I have been going through the book The Shack 
by William Young, and uh, for the past few days this week, uh, giving my reflections and thoughts on it in, in a review format. Now, the chat, and I, I've taken a little bit more time to do this because it's not it's a, it's a work of fiction, but it theologizes and it philosophizes. So it's it it engages the heart and it engages the mind in a way that's very compelling. And so it's 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 different than uh, than a systematic theology or a somebody who's writing a book that's just doing theology and doctrine. And so you ha- it, taking it apart is, is, is not exactly a straightforward endeavor. And so I've been taking it apart pieces by pieces. And so far, um, if you remember, like I've said, the, the book itself is about uh, a father by the name of Mackenzie, whose uh, young daughter had been uh, murdered by a, uh, a serial killer, and she was murdered in a shack out in the woods in the middle of nowhere. And uh, and so the story relays the information of her abduction, her murder, and, and all the things that Mackenzie and his wife went through and their children experienced. It's a few years after the event, and he's still in, in the throes of what is called the Great Sadness. And he receives a letter from the Holy Trinity, from God, inviting him to the shack in order to have a face-to-face meeting. And so um, Mackenzie shows up and, uh, and, and has an encounter with the Holy Trinity. And one of the things I pointed out uh, right off the bat is that there's some subtle things going on here. And one of the things I look at when I look at a Christian book like this is what are they attacking? What are they exalting? What, what is being put down? What is being uh, built up? And I, early on, I explained how William Young attacks subtly, ever so subtly, the the idea of sola scriptura, and he pejoratively speaks of catechesis and and seminary and religious training as religious conditioning that gets in the way of us really truly understanding what God is, um, and then yesterday or the was it yesterday i think it was yesterday <laughs> i'm getting old i i discussed how uh he has he u- mixes metaphors when it comes to uh god in fact god the father in the book the shack is portrayed for the majority of the book not the entire book for the majority of book of the book as a very large black woman uh aunt jemima is how i refer to her and um, and we talked about yesterday how that's a really dangerous way to discuss God because God does not reveal himself as female. God, you know, throughout all the scripture always reveals himself using male pronouns, uh, using male uh, words, and uh, talked about the fact that, that uh, you know, Jesus Christ himself, you know, who is God in human flesh, well, he was circumcised, so he has male plumbing. And so... Um, Today, though, I kind of want to pick up on this, uh, pick up on some other thoughts here and uh, other stuff that's a little disturbing for me. And uh, there are some who have who have critiqued the book and have said in public that that uh, the book uh, promotes a heresy known as modalism. Now, modalism, if you're not familiar with this particular heresy, is this is a concept that basically teaches that there is only one God and there's only one person in the Godhead. But God wears multiple hats. So uh, when God is, you know, Jesus is, you know, God wearing the sun hat, 
you know, that's the God's the son hat. And then God, put, you know, the, that that God character puts on a different hat or a different mask, and he reveals himself as the Father. And then he puts on another hat, and he reveals himself as the Holy Spirit. It, but there's only one God. So you got some problems, though, because when, you know, like when Jesus is on the cross, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, you know, he's crying out to the Father. You know, it that's, if you're a modalist, you have to believe that Jesus is involved in some kind of a, of a theatrics at this point. Or when Jesus is being baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, what happens is, is that you, you have the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, and you have God the Father saying, this is my son whom I am well pleased. And then you got Jesus in the water getting getting wet by, you know, being baptized by John the Baptist. Well, this creates a problem because... Uh, the question comes up, well, if there's if modalism is true, then we have to believe that what's going on here is some kind of a cosmic ventriloquist act. While Jesus is, um, you know, being dunked in the water, he's got his lips just slightly apart and he's throwing his voice up into heaven. This is my son whom I'm well pleased. You know, that kind of thing. You know, like he's, you know, Terry Fader, you know, something like that. So now there's people who think that William Young teaches modalism in the book the shack now i disagree with him by the way after reading the book i'm at i'm fairly convinced that he does not believe in modalism but what he does do confuses uh some aspects of the doctrine of the trinity and um one thing in particular really stood out in page 95 of the book and what you know kind of set this up for you uh, mac is talking with papa who is aunt jemima who is god the father in the shack and uh you know she's cooking and you we, we come to this little sentimental moment and uh mac asks aunt jemima who is god the father um how can you really know how i feel mac asked looking back into her eyes her eyes talking about god the father papa didn't answer only looked down at their hands, his gaze followed hers, and for the first time, Mac noticed the scars in her wrists, like those he now assumed Jesus also had on his. She allowed him to tenderly touch the scars, outlines of a deep piercing, and he finally looked up again into her eyes. Tears were slowly making their way down her face, little pathways through the flower that dusted her cheeks. Don't ever think that what my son chose to do didn't cost us dearly. Love always leaves a significant mark, she stated softly and gentle, gently. We were there together. Well, okay, this there's a definite problem here. And the problem is, is that it wasn't God the Father who was crucified for our sins, nor was it the Holy Spirit who was crucified for our sins. And therefore... Um, we've we've got a confusion going on here. It was God the Son, Jesus Christ, who is the second person in the Trinity. God the Son was the one who took on flesh, human flesh, who lived a perfect righteous life, who suffered and died for our sins and was crucified on the cross. And he's the one who bears the scars of the crucifixion, not God the Father nor the Holy Spirit. So um, as a result of this, this is this is problematic. This is definitely problematic, and I can see how some would say, well, he might he might believe in modalism. Um, I just think this is just sloppy, sloppy theologizing at best. I understand that sentimentally he's trying to, you know, make it clear that, you know, God, the whole Holy Trinity, you know, suffered 
in a way as a result of what was happening on the cross. But this, God the Father will not be bearing the marks of the crucifixion on his hands. It is God the Son, Jesus Christ, who does. And so we've got a problem. We've got a confusion here that definitely, um, again, pour this onto the, add this onto the fire that, you know, that you've got going on here. And the, the fuel here so far is he's attacking Sola Scriptura. He is attacking seminary. He's attacking religious conditioning, which is really catechesis in, in the Bible. He's uh, portraying God the Father as a woman. And now we've got God the Father, the female father. There are no goddesses, by the way, um, who's now bearing the marks of the crucifixion when it wasn't the father who was crucified. So, you know, this is the kind of stuff that 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 I can't overlook as somebody who believes that uh, sound doctrine and sound theology are are clearly called for in Scripture. That and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we are called to adhere to, teach, and proclaim and defend sound doctrine. This isn't. This is. This is. Pro- there's a problem here. And then we come to this little passage. Uh, yeah. Okay. This one, I, I got to set this one up a little bit. There are those who have made the claim that William Young teaches a form of universalism. Now, what is universalism? Well, universalism is the teaching, is the idea, is the concept that Jesus Christ's death on the cross, because it was for the sins of the whole world, that ultimately that means that everybody is saved. And that's how you sneak in these ideas that all paths lead to God sort of thing. Now, William Young doesn't exactly believe that all paths lead to God, but he, you know, from what I've read and from what I've heard from him, he does subscribe to some form of universalism, and it creeps into the book, The Shack. Now, this is a this is a confusion of law and gospel, and it's actually a confusion of the gospel. Now, how do I know that not everybody is saved? Well, I'm going to explain this to you in this way. And this is where Lutherans are different than Calvinists. Calvinists have a, a problem here in the sense that uh, they believe that Christ's death on the cross was only for the elect. Uh, Lutheranism, I think, holds the biblical position here and holds things in, in a paradoxical view. And basically, here's the idea. There's clear passages of Scripture that says that Christ died for the sins of the whole world. Yet, at the same time, it's clear that only the elect, those whom God elects and chooses, are the ones who are saved. And we don't, we don't know how to take these two very true statements and, make them, and smooth them out. There doesn't seem to be a way to do it. So Lutheranism will tell you basically these two things stay in paradox, and we don't have enough data, and we don't have enough information. God hasn't revealed um, enough here for us to be able to smooth this out logically. So we hold both truths, both passages, both concepts to be simultaneously true, even though they're paradoxical, much the same way we believe that there's one God and three persons. We don't know how to smooth that out, but you know it's, it's clearly taught in Scripture, so we hold these things in paradox. So here's the deal. Scripture does clearly say that Jesus Christ died for the sins of the whole world. No, I'm not arguing against that. But yet at the same time, Christ himself, in talking about the day of judgment, says that he's like a shepherd is going to shep- separate the sheep from the goat. 
goats. And the goats are going to go to everlasting punishment, also known as hell. And the sheep, those whom he's given faith and transformed from being goats into sheep, will spend eternity with him uh, and... And, you know, quite the opposite of hell, if you would, you know, I don't want to say in heaven because that's not technically true. Christ is going to remake uh, the, he- the the heavens and the earth. And, you know, we're not going to live in, as disembodied spirits up in heaven playing harps on cloud nine. No, we're human beings and God's going to remake the earth. And as a result of it, you know, we receive resurrection bodies and we live forever, you know, but not in heaven, so to speak, but in the presence of God. Um, so just something to consider there. So here's the deal. We know for a fact, because Jesus himself says that there will be those who are not saved, who will go into everlasting torment, that not all are saved. And we don't, we don't understand why some and not others. Now, William Young, on the other hand, he's, he's, uh, confusing the gospel here or he's misapplying it in a way, if you would. And let me read this. This is from chapter, uh, this is actually from uh, page 181 in the shack. Near the bottom, it says this. This is Mac and Jesus talking, by the way. They're having a conversation about uh, religious systems and man-made institutions and and politics and things like that. And and, uh, Mac says, he says, but so many of the people I care about seem to be both in and of it, talking about the world systems. Mac was thinking of his friends and church people who had expressed love to him and his family. He knew they loved Jesus, but they were also sold out to religious activity and to patriotism. Jesus says, Mac, I love them, and you wrongly judge many of them. For those who are both in and of it, we must find ways to love and serve them, don't you think? asked Jesus. Remember the people who know me are the ones who are free to live and love without any agenda. Is that what it means to be a Christian? It sounded kind of stupid as Max said it, but it was how he was trying to sum everything up in his mind. Who said anything about being a Christian? Jesus said, I'm not a Christian. The idea struck Mac as odd and unexpected, and he couldn't keep himself from grinning. No, I suppose you aren't. They arrived at the door of the workshop. Again, Jesus stopped. Those who love me come from every system that exists. They were Buddhists or Mormons and Baptists or Muslims, Democrats, Republicans, and many who don't vote or are not part of any Sunday morning or religious institution. I have followers who were murderers and many who were self-righteous. Some are bankers and bookies, Americans and Iraqis, Jews and Palestinians. I have no desire to make them Christian, but I do want to join them in their transformation into sons and daughters of my papa into my brothers and sisters, into my beloved. Does that mean, asked Mac, that all roads will lead to you? Well, not at all, smiled Jesus as he reached for the door handle to the shop. Most roads don't lead anywhere. What it does mean is that I will travel any road to find you. Okay, this is definitely off the charts bad. This sounds exactly like what we get from Brian McLaren in his book, A Generous Orthodoxy, where he claims it's possible to be a flaming snowflake. You know, he juxtaposes two completely contradictory ideas. I'm an Arminian Calvinist. I'm a, you know, anyway, in in the book, A Generous Orthodoxy, 
Brian McLaren makes the case. He says that uh, it's possible for somebody to be a follower of Jesus and still maintain, it, you know, and do so in a Buddhist or a Muslim context. You know, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to leave Buddhism or Islam or anything like that. And how do you get to such a perverse concept? Well, that's when you mix up law and gospel again. When you define being a Christian as according to some kind of transformation or according to some kind of moral uh, outcome or moral improvement in your life, you can make the claim that anybody in any religious system, well, wow, that's a moral person. They must be a follower of Jesus, even though they don't even know who Jesus is. And wrong. That's the wrong way of looking at it. In fact, um, we're going to take a quick break, and when we get back from the break, I'm going to talk a little bit about law and gospel so that we can lay this out and you can see that moral improvement does not equal being a follower of Christ. Every religious system, even even non-religious systems, things like recovery programs like uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, create moral improvement and cleaning up of your life, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you are a follower of Jesus. It just means you may be shining up the uh, brass on the Titanic before it sinks. Anyway, we're... (laughs) Sorry, that's just a pejorative way of speaking. So anyway, we'll be... uh, (laughs) We're going to take our first break here. And uh, if you would like to email me and sign off here and let me know your thoughts on the shack or uh, would like to uh, let me know how the Klingon Bible has been practical in your life and witnessing to uh, people from other galaxies. You can do so at TalkBackAtFightingForTheFaith.com That's TalkBackAtFightingForTheFaith.com and we'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning for the written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus schlock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn radio program, including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. Available exclusively at NewReformationPress.com or the big picture audio presentation Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. 
And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com. Finally, Reformation Theology Made Accessible. All right, we're back. So how do you define a follower of Jesus? Could you be a Buddhist and be a follower of Jesus and not know it because, wow, you're living a moral life? Or how about a Muslim, you know, a good Muslim, somebody who is making a difference in the world and being moral? Can you actually be a follower of Jesus and and not know it? Uh, the answer is no, because you're looking at, you're confusing law and gospel here. And what I'd like to do before we get into the 40 days of love, what I'd like to do is uh, read to you a passage from the book of Romans. Stay with me. This is important. In Romans chapter 2 and uh, 3, Paul will make a case here about the law. And what he's going to, but when he's all done with what he's going to be doing here, every single one of us will be reduced down to uh, (laughs) a smoldering stub. Because here's the deal the purpose of the law is to convict us of our sin. In fact, to kind of help you out here, I'm going to make the claim here on the show, and this is not original to me, but I absolutely believe it, that there is only, there is only two religions in the whole world. There are only two religions in the world. Now, one religion takes on many, many different forms. And uh, and then the other religion, you know, not so much, really, because it's pretty basic. Now, the one religion says that man works his way up to God, climbs the ladder of morals and works, and through self-righteous acts of obedience earns God's favor, earns God's prosperity, earns God's uh, love, earns God's rewards, and by the works that you do, whammo blammo, you earn your way to heaven. Now, the problem here is is that this is a confusion of uh, an understanding of the law and really doesn't does not take into consideration just how sinful and depraved we human beings are. Now, this first religion takes on many forms. Uh, For instance, Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism is a wonderfully elaborate religion of works. See, what happens is, is that in your baptism or conversion, God puts you into a state of grace, and it's your job to become perfect before you die. So that you know, if so that you can go to heaven. But uh, obviously, few people ever become perfect before they die. But as long as you die in a state of grace, then what'll happen is is that you can spend millions of years is in purgatory in in hot flames, burning off your bad karma, if you would, paying the penalty for your sins. And then at at which point, after you've been purified in purgatory, then you get to go to heaven and be with God. Or let's put it another way: there's you know the religion of works also exists in liberal Lutheranism. It exists in purpose-drivenism. It exists in Islam. It is seen in Buddhism. It is seen in Hinduism. It is seen in Jainism. It is seen in all the isms of the world. These are systems by which you climb the ladder to God and earn his favor. Now, the second religion is pretty simple. It says this, that 
What we learn in God's law is that every single one of us human beings who's ever been born is guilty before God, stands completely guilty of breaking God's law. In fact, because we've broken God's law, it's like a debt that we are incapable of ever paying. And let me give you an example of what's going on here. In the book of James, James makes the claim that when you break one of the commandments, you're actually guilty of breaking all of the commandments, not just the one that you broke. So you guys out there or you girls, you look at somebody lustfully in your heart. You go, oh, hubba, hubba, hubba. I want that person. Well, you've just committed adultery with that person inside of your heart. That's what Jesus said. And James takes that and cranks it up to the you know hundredth power and says, oh, not only did you commit adultery. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. That's not the only thing you've done here. You've actually, you're actually guilty of breaking all of the commandments every single time you break a single commandment. That being the case, every single time that you sin, every moment that ticks off that you don't love God with all of your heart, you are racking up all kinds of sinful, of debt, really, if you would, to God that when he comes in judgment, he has every right to throw you into hell. So the purpose of the law is not to show us the program by which we have to get on the rat wheel and earn our way to heaven. No, the purpose of the law is to utterly destroy any notions of self-righteousness and expose to you in full terror how great your debt is. In fact, your debt to God is so bad that you owe, let me put it in dollars, in a dollar and cents point of view. You owe a multi-trillion dollar debt to God. And your feeble good works, at best, is a minimum wage job. At best. So you have a debt to God that you cannot possibly pay, even if you had an infinite amount of time to do so, because every single time you sin, the debt gets bigger. So the purpose of the law is not to show you the program by which you earn God's favor. The purpose of the law is to nail you to the wall. It's to melt your face off and make you realize, holy guacamole, I am a sinner. God, help me. Have mercy on me. There is no possible way I can pay this debt off. Got it? Now, let me read a passage of scripture to you. Here we go. And I'm going to change a word here. I'm going to start Romans chapter 2, verse 17. I'm going to change a word, not because I'm trying to change the Bible, because I, I, I want you to kind of hear this with a fresh set of ears. Because uh, Paul here is talking about Jews, right? In, in this section, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Greeks. And by the time we get into the middle of chapter 3, he's actually going to make it so that every single one of us, Jews and Greeks alike, Jews and Gentiles, that means everybody in the whole world is sold under sin. But uh, many Christians are under the misguided notion that somehow they add or contribute to their salvation. And as a result of it, they fall into the first category of, of you know, the first religion, the religion of works. And uh, the Jews of uh, Paul's day, the Pharisees, had the same idea. Here it goes. It says, but if you call yourself a Christian, actually it says Jew, but I'll say Christian. So if you call yourself a Christian and you rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness and an instructor of, of the foolish, a teacher of children having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, 
You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Fast forwarding to Romans chapter 3. So what then, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Well, much in every way. To begin with, Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Well, what if some were unfaithful? Does their, unf uh, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Well, by no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. Well, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, well, their condemnation is just. So what then? Are we Jews, or should I say, are we Christians any better off? Well, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Christians or Jews and Greeks, are all under sin. That's Romans chapter 3, verse 9. All are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. The mouth, Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, this is the important part. So Paul here has just put all of humanity under the law, said sold out to the law, and none of us is righteous, not even one. Well, what do we do with the law then, Paul? If we're all sold under sin. Verse 19, chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped or shut up, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. I've said it before and I'll say it again. The law is not the gospel. The law cannot save you unless you keep it perfectly. If you've already broken God's law, then you need to understand the depth and the severity of the problem that you are in. You are sold out to sin. God has every right to come and hold you accountable and make you pay for what you have done. The purpose of the law is to show you the knowledge of your sin. It is a tool of the gospel to show you your need for a savior. 
And with that in mind, we're going to go ahead and dive into Rick Warren's sermon on the 40 days of love. We're going to listen to the opening section here, and I've got a nut. Well, we'll talk about that on Monday. Don't want to give Monday's show away. All right, so what we're going to do is Rick Warren here is at the beginning. This is the beginning portion of week two of the 40 days of love. And listen carefully. Is he preaching law or is he preaching the gospel? I think it's pretty clear what he's doing, but we'll, we'll, we'll comment along the way. Here we go. Hey, guys. Thank you, Rick. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Weekend at Saddleback, whether you're Saddleback Lake Forest, Saddleback San Clemente, Saddleback Corona, Saddleback Irvine, or any other little Saddleback that burst while I was uh, not looking this week. Oh, yeah, Saddleback is engaging in pastoral pornography. Hey, I guarantee if you go to Saddleback San Clemente or Saddleback Irvine or Saddleback Corona or any of the other Saddlebacks that are about to be birthed, uh, Pastor Rick Warren doesn't know you, and uh, you know he's not really your pastor, unless you consider your pastor to be the one with whom you're having a relationship with on a computer monitor. Sorry, I digress. Glad you're here. If you want your life to count, you have to focus it. You don't have time for everything. Everybody agree with that? And uh, you don't have time for everything, and not everything is of equal value. Now, Jesus said there are two things that are more valuable in life than anything else. He said it's love, loving God and loving each other. Okay, stop right there. What is that? Jesus was asked, what is the most important commandment in the law? The law. Romans 3.20. The purpose of the law is to show you the knowledge of your sin. Rick Warren is just saying that Jesus Christ said it's the most important thing to do. As if Jesus was saying, this is the thing you need to be focusing on. Can the law save you? No, it can't, unless you keep it perfectly. Here's the problem. He's not preaching the law in a way to convict people of their sins. No, he's not. And that's the purpose of the law. If you're going to preach the law right. Now, what's funny is is that I was golfing with a buddy of mine not too long ago, and he was saying, you know, he, he comes to our church, and he's coming out of Calvinism, if you would. Sorry, you Calvinists out there. I know we're supposed to be on the same team, but we always love it. We Lutherans love it when the, when a Calvinist becomes a Lutheran. Anyway, he was making the charge that a Calvinist buddy of his was saying that, that Lutherans are antinomians. Antinomian is a basically a $5 theological word that means against the law. That we somehow, that, that because we're Christians, we're, you know, the, the law plays no place in the Christian life. That's just patently not true what, uh, the, in characterizing Lutherans that way. In fact, our, the Luther's small catechism begins with reflections on the uh, Ten Commandments. We believe that the purpose of the law is to convict people of their sin and we believe that the Christian life is a continual life of repentance. In fact, um, I had the opportunity back, oh, man, this is going back a ways, about 20 years ago now, of, of meeting St. Ken Corby. I call him that, the sainted Kent Cor- Ken Corby, because he is no longer with us. Uh, he's, uh, he's died. He, he's dead. He's gone to be with the Lord. He's joined the choir invisible. And... Um, Ken Corby was a force of nature, man. I, this was, this man was amazing. He was a mensch. And those of you who know what that word means, know what I'm talking about. This guy, cowboy boots, 10 gallon hat, 
you know, when he wasn't wearing his uh, his collar, you know, he would travel that way. He, he had a he had a mustache that was stained from the cigarettes that he was smoking all the time, and he just an amazing an amazing man. And uh, I invited him out to uh, Christ College Irvine uh, to come speak at a student event that we were holding. Uh, and the, I was head of some campus group at the time. I don't remember the name of it. And uh, we invited Ken Corby out. And this guy was amazing. Afterwards, I remember getting a phone call from him. You know, it was the week after Easter. And I'm working at uh, <laughs> I'm working at a company called Passy Muir. And uh, uh, Patricia Passy is not a, uh, a Christian lady. And, uh, in fact, she's somewhat hostile to uh, Christianity. At least she was at this time. And uh, Ken Corby calls me on the phone, and he shouts into the phone, He is risen! And I go, um, I'm at work. He goes, He has risen! He's risen indeed. He said, Louder! He is risen indeed. <laughs> one of the offices is looking at me. <laughs> I remember one time, I was at an event in Wisconsin. I, I was at Peter Bender's church, and we were doing, they were doing a conference on the catechism. And uh, they had a church service, and... Uh, Ken Corby was presiding, and we had the common cup, and I've never had the common cup more forcefully put into my mouth. I thought I was going to lose teeth. Man, uh, stories about Ken Corby are wonderful. Anyway, Ken Corby, while he was alive, he put together a self-examination and reflection piece. I'll post the, a PDF of this up at fightingforthefaith.com so that you guys can uh, can download it. It'll be in the show notes section of this show. And... um this is doing the law right, okay? And he, he, right at the beginning of it, he says, the Ten Commandments preach repentance. That is, by them, God shows us our sin and how much we need a Savior. And so then he takes the Ten Commandments, he takes different pieces from, you know, he kind of lifts stuff from the uh, small catechism and then adds his own reflection. So from Luther's small catechism, we read, uh, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods. What does this mean? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. My God is that which I love and trust and fear most of my life. I expect my comfort and good and delight from my God. So then Ken Corby, in reflecting on this first commandment that you shall have no other gods, asks some really, really tough questions to help really get you to dig down and see just how much of a sinner you are by the fact that you do that you have other gods except for God. So he says, do I look to God, my heavenly father for all love, good and joy? Is everything measured for me by what pleases me? How about in all things I am I self-centered and selfish? Do I see my worry and fretting as sin against God? Do I complain about the troubles, people, work, and suffering God lays on me? Do I love the things God gives me more than I love Him? Do I cling to what God takes away even though He gives me Himself? See, that's what, when you when you really look at the commandment, you shall have no other gods, or as Rick Warren here in the 40 Days of Love is pointing out, the commandment says to love the Lord your God with all of your heart. So if you're going to do the law lawfully, you've got to do it in such a way as to ferret out and expose sin in order to preach repentance and show us how much we need a Savior in Christ. Instead, what Rick Warren is doing here in the 40 Days of Love, he's preaching the law in such a way as he's going to give you instruction and, and, and reasons and methods by which you can keep it. But you can't and you don't. 
That's the problem. Let's get back to the 40 days of love. Last week we looked at this verse. It's called the Great Commandment. When we were talking about five definitions of love. And if you missed last week, I highly recommend that you go listen to last week's message. Uh, because a lot of what you've been taught about the, about love is just flat out wrong. It's yeah, like the stuff you preached last week, Rick, where you took verses completely out of context and made them say what they didn't say. Is that does that technically fall under the category of teaching something that's false about love? Uh, sorry, just wanted to know. It's wrong, and you need to go and go to the website saddleback.com and listen to that message on uh, building healthy relationships. But one of the verses we looked at last week is this one that's at the top of your outline where he was asked, Jesus was asked, what is the most important command? And uh, what is the most important command? Command. Command is law. Law cannot save unless you keep it perfectly. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. This is the first and greatest command. And the second most important is similar. Love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Now, I want you to circle most important and second most important. God says these are the two things that matter most in life. Love for God and love for people. No, he doesn't say they are the most important things in life. He says these are the most important commands. I know there's a difference here. And the point I'm making here is, is that this is the law. This is this, this is law. These are the most important commands. And our problem is that we don't do these things. And no amount of focusing, no amount of trying, no amount of whatever is going to make it so that you can live up to this expectation of the law. Why? Because you are sinful by nature. You are sinful by nature and you're not capable of doing this. So this can't save you. He says, if you get these two things, you got it. Well, that's the thing. None of us gets it. And even you, Rick Warren, don't get it. You do not get it. When God created you, have you ever thought about why didn't he just take you to heaven? Why did he put you on earth? You're only here for 60, 80, maybe at the most 100 years. And you're going to live for eternity uh, in heaven or hell. Why didn't God just create you and take everybody to heaven? Why did he put us here on earth for... 80 or so years. Uh, the Bible actually doesn't answer that question straightforwardly, Rick. It really doesn't. But of course, you're going to make the claim that it does. The Bible is very clear about it, that God puts you here on earth to do two things, to learn to love God and to learn to love other people. Oh, so it's just a matter of learning how to do these things. That's why you're here. Learn to, lo learn to love God and learn to love your neighbor. That's the law. Life is a one giant lesson in love. Oh, welcome to the schoolyard known as life. Life is not about acquisition, how much I get. It's not about accomplishment, how much I do. It's not about achievement, how much I earn. It's not about all the other things that we're told life's about. Because all of that, you're going to leave behind. You're not taking your career to heaven. You're not taking your car to heaven. You're not taking your china to heaven. You're not taking your house to heaven, but you are taking your character. Uh, Rick, that's the problem is according to God's law, when I really look at what it is that God's law requires of me, I realize that I am morally bankrupt.
That's my character. Through and through, I am shot through with sin. No amount of self-help strategies or application steps is going to really make a difference here. I need something more powerful than that. And the law, all it does is condemn me. When you really look at the law properly, all it does is condemn. You're taking you. And God puts you on earth for 80 to 100 years so you can learn to love. Life is all about learning how to love. And Jesus said, All you need is love. And na 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 na. All you need is love. Hmm. Actually, the scriptures teach us we are saved by grace through faith. It is not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. Here, the two most important things in life are learn to love God with all your heart and learn to love everybody else. He says, you get that, you got life. Yeah, you're right. If you get that, you've got life. But that's the thing. None of us gets it, Rick. That's what Romans chapter 3 says. Let me reread that passage here. Let's see. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one is good. Not even one. That includes you, Rick. Why are you preaching the law as if we can somehow pull it off? That's the problem. You know that Romans chapter 8 says that you can't, that somebody who is an unbeliever cannot obey God. And this is where it gets really, really bad. I want you to consider something here. The sermon that you're listening to, The 40 Days of Love, Saddleback has spent tens of thousands of dollars advertising to all of Orange County to come and participate and sit in on these sermons on The 40 Days of Love. Why? Because Rick Warren is a big proponent of what he calls that attractional evangelism, or otherwise known as the seeker-sensitive method of doing church. In other words, church is evangelism. We don't we don't feed sheep anymore because that's selfish. No, what we do is we attract goats to come to our church so that we can evangelize them with evangelize them. So imagine that you know last week they bought a full page, full color advertisement. In the Friday edition of the Orange County Register, in the Saturday edition of the Orange County Register, and the Sunday edition of the Orange County Register, with the whole goal of getting a bunch of unbelievers, I'm sorry, that's not the word they use anymore, it's unchurched, with the whole goal of getting a bunch of unchurched people to come to Saddleback. And so imagine that you are an unchurched person, you've seen the 40 Days of Love advertisement in the orange county registry you think you know what why don't i go check it out why not now i want to be a better person i I, you know i think religion is a good thing or something like that and you go to saddleback church what are you being told are you being shown jesus christ are you being told the gospel are you are you are your sins being exposed for what they are and showing your need for a savior absolutely not Instead, you are being told that that you need to live a life of learning how to love God and love your neighbor. But the problem is, is that scripture says if you are an unbeliever, it is impossible for you to keep God's law. Let me read to you this passage of scripture from Romans chapter 8. I'll start in verse 1, but the verses we want to get to are at 7 and 8, and I'm going to read it in context. This section of scripture begins with some beautiful gospel, by the way, for us Christians. This is written to the Christians in Rome. Here's what it says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Amen. You know that you are a sinner and you know that you don't keep God's law and you know that you are desperately in need of the Savior and the only thing you have that you can think of to do because God has given it for you to do it is to say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me. And you bet all of your chips on Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 1 says this, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Great news. The righteous requirements of God's law love God with all of your heart and love your neighbor as yourself were perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds. By the way, flesh is uh, here in, in this basically is referring to the sinful nature. Those who live according to the sinful nature set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Here's the important verses. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Our sinful condition is so bad. Romans chapter 8, 7 and 8 says that those who are unbelievers, those who have their mind set on the flesh, they are hostile to God. And they do not submit to God's law. Indeed, they cannot submit to God's law. So pretend that you are an unbeliever at Saddleback Church that has seen the advertisements that Saddleback has put in the paper for you to come to church and learn about the 40 days of love. And what are you being told? You're being told to love God and love your neighbor. But that's the law of God. It does, the, but the sinful nature does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. The sinful nature cannot please God. So what is Rick telling them to do to love God and love their neighbor and they can't do it? And they, why? Because the, by nature, they are sinful. By nature, they are incapable of doing these things. At, by nature, they are hostile to God and will not submit to God's law. So Rick Warren is giving them the law as a solution and it's no solution at all. You don't preach the law as if you can keep it. You preach the law to expose your need for a savior, but Rick Warren is not preaching it that way. And so as a result of it, you have thousands of people attending Saddleback Church who are unbelievers and they're being fed the law rather than being fed the law in a way to convict them of their sins and show them their need for Jesus Christ, who is God in human flesh, who died for their sins. In other words, Rick Warren is spending thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to attract people to church, and he's still keeping them in their sins, and they're just as much children of the devil as they were when they came. This is sad. You don't get that uh, wrong answer. You just wasted your life. So in conclusion, thank you all for coming to Saddleback Church. That's what I want to point out today. And we're going to talk about the priority of love. Now, we know love's important, but we forget it. 
and we get so distracted by other things. So uh, this morning, we're going to look at what I call the three laws of love. Oh, man. He just gave us God's law. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And now he's going to give us three more laws that we have to keep. The three laws of love. Where is Christ? Where is the gospel? In this sermon, Jesus is only a lawgiver. That's the only thing he's, he is in this sermon. All Jesus has made the appearance to give you more law. Jesus might as well be Moses. And if you're going to ever be a great lover, you're going to learn to really love God and learn to love other people. You've got to learn and keep in your mind the three laws of love. Here's law number one. <sighs> the best use of life is love. That's law number one. The best use of life is love. Yeah, that's great, Rick, but, uh, but here's the deal. I don't love. Even despite my best efforts, I don't love God enough. Because God wants me to love him with my whole heart. And God wants me to love my neighbor as myself, and I consistently, on a daily basis, and so do you, Rick, don't love God with all of my heart. And I don't love my neighbor as myself perfectly. So yeah, I agree. Love would probably be the best use of my life. But my problem is, is that in my sinful nature, I am sold out to sin. The things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. And you're just giving me steps and laws to do the law? Where's Christ? Where's the gospel? Where's my need for a savior? Where's Christ's rescue of humanity? Where's the one who's going to save me and be my hero? Who can save me from this body of sin? You're telling me I have to do it myself. God says you need to make learning how to love your number one priority, your primary objective, your greatest ambition, your life purpose more than anything else. He says you need to say, I want to learn how to be a loving person, how to love God and how to love other people. Notice he's preaching the law as if you have to do it in order to please God. Now, why does he say that? Four reasons. Four reasons why love is more important than anything else. Number one, love validates my faith. <sighs> love validates my faith. Well, if that's the case, then um, maybe I'm not saved. Maybe you're not saved because the law demands perfect obedience. If love validates my faith in Jesus Christ, then maybe I'm not saved because after being a Christian for practically all of my life, I still don't love God with all of my heart, neither do you. And I still sin against my neighbor, showing that I don't love my neighbor as myself. If I have to look to how well I love to validate my faith, then maybe I'm not saved. Maybe you're not either. You see how this works? The law demands perfect obedience. Not improvement, but perfect obedience. If you have to look to your law-keeping as a validation of whether or not you're saved, then maybe you're not. But Christ loved God perfectly. Christ perfectly loved his neighbors as himself. And the gospel, the good news, is that Jesus Christ is offering you his 
perfect righteousness. Gratis, 100% free, as a gift for all who believe, who trust. And even that faith to believe is given as a gift. Repent of your sins. You are wicked and depraved, and so am I. Repent and believe the good news. We'll do a little more of Rick Warren's 40 Days of Love next week. Because I know that every one of you is just so excited to hear more of this. But it's important because if you want to know what's wrong with the preaching in America, you have to listen to the preaches of America and compare it to the Word of God. It's a confusion of law and gospel, and what Rick Warren is preaching, literally, is the kind of stuff that will create Pharisees. Literally, will create Pharisees. Well, you've been listening to Fighting for the Faith. I'd like to thank you for tuning in and hope that you have a great and blessed and restful weekend. If you would like to email me and let me know how you're keeping God's law perfectly, please do so. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Or how you think that uh, unbelievers, if they learn how to love God, will go to heaven. <clears throat> Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Until next time, God bless you.